Let us pray. O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you who are of a certain age may recognize these song lyrics, no more pencils, no more books, no more teachers' dirty looks, and then the great refrain, school's out for summer, school's out forever. And as a child of the 70s, I grew up listening to Alice Cooper blasting that song out of the radio. But during that time period, for those of you who are too young to even know who Alice Cooper is, he was every parent's worst nightmare of what you did not want your child to grow up to be. Goth before goth was a thing, um, long hair, and a wild reputation for alcohol, drugs, and every bad thing that there could be. So that was all I knew about Alice Cooper. And so I went off to Duke University as a freshman in the late 70s. And when I was there, had the good fortune to get involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which taught me so many things that still bless me today. But one of the things it taught me is that praying with other people is something that Christians actually do. That had never occurred to me before. I thought you only prayed in your church pew. So I had a lot to learn, but we were assigned prayer partners in our small group, and I went to pray with my prayer partner one week, and we were talking about what we would like prayer for, and she said, I would like to pray for Alice Cooper. And I said, oh, well, that's so funny that you have a friend with the same name as the rock star. And she said, oh, no, 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 I mean to pray for the rock star. And I was like, don't you know what kind of person he is? And she said, I certainly do, but imagine what would happen if he came to Christ and the impact he could have. So we prayed for Alice Cooper. And I didn't really think anything more about that until 1984 when I was reading in the Post and Courier, or maybe the News and Courier at that time, and one of the headlines was, Alice Cooper gives his life to Jesus Christ. And I was shocked, and there was an interview that I want to quote from, and Alice Cooper said, I knew who Jesus Christ was and that I was denying him. I knew that there either had to come a point when I accepted Christ and started living his life, or if I died in my current lifestyle, I was going to be in a lot of trouble. I got to the point of saying, I'm tired of this life, and I know that this is right. When the Lord opens your eyes and you suddenly realize who you are and who he is, I believe now in heaven and hell. People think of the devil with horns and a pointy tail. Man, you are so far off the mark, Cooper exclaimed. The devil is going to be the best-looking, smoothest-talking guy in the room. He's going to make you feel like a million bucks, but you'd better watch out because he's got a whole different set of plans for you. Cooper gave his life to Christ. He was miraculously healed of his drug and alcohol addiction, and even though he continues to perform, he now actually leads Bible studies and has led a number of other musicians to faith in Christ. And you may think, well, that's very nice, but what in the world does that have to do with anything? But what it has to do with is the idea of mercy, which is the subject of the gospel reading today. 
And one of the problems that we have with mercy is that if you are like me, we are very often like the Pharisees. We want to decide who's worthy of mercy and who's not. We want to write off whole groups of those people who do those bad things and think that if they would just go away, the world would be a better place. But the fact of the matter is that God is a God of mercy. And just so we define our terms, because mercy, uh, if you're a southerner, is something that you just throw around all the time. Mercy, or Lord have mercy, but we don't think what it means. So the Oxford English Dictionary says, mercy is clemency, forgiveness, and compassion shown to a person who is in a position of powerlessness or subjection, or to a person with no right or claim to receive kindness, or kind and compassionate treatment in a case where severity is merited or expected, especially in legal judgment or passing sentence. Mercy is one of those things that we trace all through the Old Testament and right into the New Testament. And the Old Testament word is that great Hebrew word chesed that's so much fun to say, uh, but it is variously translated mercy, loving kindness, steadfast love. And it's the idea that God chooses to set this mercy on us, not because we deserved it, but because of his heart for his people. And what you see all through the Old Testament and the New Testament is that no one, no one is beyond the reach of God's mercy. And that is a truth of which we need to be reminded. So when we look at the context for today's passage, Jesus has finished the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 7, and he has been going around demonstrating what living out that kingdom of God teaching means. And he has been healing a lot of people. But the people that Matthew recounts as healing are not the people that the Pharisees would have said were the nice church people. He first heals a leper. He then heals the servant of a Roman centurion, the oppressive occupying power. He then heals a demon-possessed man and then the paralyzed man that is let down through the roof by his friends. Now the interesting thing about that is if you were a Pharisee, a religious leader during that time, you would have said all of those people were under God's judgment and they did not deserve God's mercy. And so then right after that story of the paralyzed man, we get today's passage. And I want us to look at three things about it. Jesus' call to Matthew, Matthew's response to Jesus' call, and then Jesus' teaching about mercy. So first, Matthew's call. And this is one of those things where when you read the scripture, you can just miss something that is hugely, hugely important. So when we read this, we think Jesus went by and Matthew was at the tax collector's desk and Jesus said, follow me, and Matthew got up and followed him, so what, no big deal. But for anyone who was a first century Jew or even a Gentile, when they heard this, a four alarm fire bell would go off in their head and they would think, what? And they would go back and reread it and think that it was impossible or crazy or both. Because you see, in this time period, tax collectors were the scourge of society. 
They were the lowest of the low. It's no accident in the New Testament that you usually see tax collectors and sinners bracketed together. And that word sinners means drunkards, robbers, and prostitutes. But tax collectors were even lower than they were because tax collectors were Jewish traitors. They were employed by the Romans and basically given by the Romans a license to steal from their fellow countrymen if they made enough money to pay the Roman taxes, whatever else they could get out of people, they could get. So they were the richest people in the country, but they were shunned by good Jews. The Pharisees had barred tax collectors from coming to the synagogue. They could not come to the synagogue, they could not enter the temple. Any Jewish person was forbidden from speaking with a tax collector, going into his home or inviting him into their home. And the classification of uh, the lower ranks of existence, Pharisees classed the tax collectors in the same category as swine. So it is almost impossible to conceive how looked down upon tax collectors were. They were barred from giving testimony in court, and the idea that a Jewish rabbi would speak to a tax collector, let alone invite him to follow him and become his disciple, is absolutely shocking, breathtaking, mind-blowing, whatever superlative you can come up with. And that is because tax collectors were politically unacceptable, socially unacceptable, and religiously unacceptable. And yet Jesus goes with intentionality to a tax collector and says, follow me. And the interesting thing is that the tax collector, Matthew, gets up and follows Jesus. It is a shocking thing. And one of the interesting things about this is remember, we're in Matthew's gospel. Matthew is telling this about himself. He's not covering up his dark, shady, disreputable past. It reminds me so much of that beautiful Rembrandt painting of Jesus' crucifixion, where in the crowd below calling crucify him, Rembrandt has painted his own face. It is a great reminder that even after we come to Jesus, we must never lose sight of the fact that without him, we are hopeless sinners. And that brings us to Matthew's response. It says simply, Matthew rose and followed him. Now when we look at what St. Luke says in his gospel, we see that Matthew rose and followed him and left behind all his possessions. Now remember, Matthew is one of the richest people in this culture, and yet he leaves it all behind. But look at what Matthew does next. He gets up and follows Jesus, and the very next thing he does is he wants to share this great good news of this mercy that he's experienced, this new life he's found in following Jesus <clears throat> with his friends, those who are what you might say like the country song, those friends in low places. So he has a banquet to which he invites all the other tax collectors and sinners, i.e., he went like to Upper King Street at two in the morning and rounded up people off the sidewalks and took them in, and that was who was at this party. It was the last kind of group that a Pharisee would have been caught dead even talking to, let alone going into the house. 
But he throws this banquet and Jesus goes in and he doesn't just go in and say, oh, all you sinful people, come out of there, come out of this gross party and come out here and follow me into righteousness. No, Jesus goes in there and he stays for dinner. He's not just preaching at them, he is with them, he is building relationship with them and talking to them about the kingdom of God. It is shocking. And the interesting thing is, think about what this must have been like for Matthew. The great Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle puts it this way in a meditation. We find this man, Matthew, who afterwards wrote the first gospel, sitting at the tax collector's booth. We see him absorbed in his worldly calling and possibly thinking of nothing but money and gain. But suddenly the Lord Jesus calls on him to follow him and become his disciple. Matthew obeys at once. He makes haste and delays not. He arises and follows him. He waited for nothing. He did not tarry for a convenient time, and he reaped in consequence a great reward. He wrote this gospel, which is now known over all the earth, became a blessing to others, as well as being blessed in his own soul. He left behind a name as a result which is better known than the names of princes and kings or the richest man of this world. But as long as the world stands, millions will know the name of Matthew, the tax collector. As Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So that brings us thirdly to Jesus' teaching on mercy. And this teaching, if you put yourself back in the first century, this teaching is absolutely shocking. It is upside down from everything that the Pharisees had taught people. And it is unfortunately upside down from some of the ideas that we get about Christianity that are rooted in culture and not in the scriptures. So the first of these things is that the Pharisees didn't believe that they needed God's forgiveness. They thought that they were righteous. They prided themselves on having enumerated the 613 laws in the Old Testament and keeping all of them. That was what they believed they did. And they were quite certain that just as they were righteous, that there were those other people in the culture who were not, who they should shun, who should they should judge and look down upon and have nothing to do with because those people were beyond the reach of God's mercy and what it meant to be a good Jewish person was to shun those people and to look down on them. And yet, the problem the Pharisees had is that because they considered themselves to be righteous, they therefore shut themselves out of the salvation that God had proclaimed beginning in the Old Testament while at the same time judging that no one besides themselves was worthy to enter in. The Pharisees go on beyond that to attack Jesus's morals. Now just take a step back from that and just think about the gall of a human being to attack the morals of the Son of God. That's pretty breathtaking. But they went right ahead and attacked his morals because they assumed that if he was with these people, he must be in there doing with them all those bad, evil things that they did. And so they go to Jesus' disciples, and they say, why does your teacher eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
And the interesting thing is that Jesus responds to them with an analogy about a doctor. And in this era, doctors were very rare. They were very highly educated. There was no doctor's office. The doctor went to where the sick person was. And Jesus comes out and says, it is not the well who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And one of the interesting things here is that you see Jesus demonstrating something that we as the church, as Christians, need desperately to recover, which is the biblical idea of love. That love that can love the person and love the sinner while hating the sin. It is like what St. Paul admonishes us to do in Romans 12, let love be sincere, hate what is evil, but cling to what is good. Jesus is remembering that each of these people in this party is lost. They don't know their left from their right. They don't know up from down. They don't understand. And the worst thing that you can do is leave them to their own devices because lost people will perish and drag other people with them in their sin. The interesting thing about this is it is so much like that wonderful quotation from the great Russian Christian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn said this, the line between good and evil runs not through states, nor between classes, nor even between political parties, but the line between good and evil runs right through the middle of every human heart. How often do we as people in the church look at what's going on in our culture and blame it on certain groups of people? Blame those people, sometimes be angry at those people, and sometimes, even if we're honest, hate those people. But the problem with that is that is not what Jesus calls us to do. We are never to compromise truth, but at the same time, we are never to let go of love and mercy because the only love and mercy and grace and truth that's left in this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if those of us who know that gospel refuse to share it with the lost, then who will? The problem is that instead we should, we should yearn, yearn for those who are lost to know about the one who saved us, to remember that we are sinners. Even when we have been saved, we are still sinners to remember that it is only by God's grace, there but for the grace of God go we. And we should be yearning to share the word of life with these people. As Tim Keller said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more accepted and loved in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. Jesus goes on to quote something to the Pharisees, and there's a little dig here because Jesus says, go and learn what this means. Well, if you read in the rabbinic literature of the first century, go and learn what this means is something that was often said in the rabbinic literature to rebuke those who ought to have known something and either had slacked and hadn't learned it or had forgotten it. 
And the Pharisees, remember, are those who are supposed to know the word of God. They are the ones who are immersed in it day by day. That's their job. It's their job to preach it and teach it. But yet Jesus says to them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the source of that quotation, of course, is the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, one that I would suggest that most of us probably have not spent a lot of time reading. But Hosea is a beautiful story. It is the story of Hosea and his love for his beautiful but wayward and unfaithful wife who has the unfortunate name of Gomer, which makes us think of Gomer Pyle. Uh, but the scriptures tell us that she was a beautiful and highly desirable woman, but she was uh, like Ruby in the old song. She took her love to town, as it were, and abandoned Hosea time and time again. But Hosea loved her steadfastly with that word we talked about before, chesed, that's like God's love and mercy. And that model of God's unrelenting love for her is what Jesus is trying to get across to the Pharisees here. And the interesting thing is when you read the whole quotation, it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the knowledge and love of God rather than burnt offerings. And what Jesus is saying is he wants to be in relationship, not just with these people who are lost in the party, but the people who are lost like the Pharisees. And he has come to bring that good news. But the beautiful thing here is the reminder that God's love is for sinners. And no matter how nice we may look on Sunday morning or what kind of vestments we may be wearing, the fact of the matter is that we are all sinners. We are saved by grace, but while we walk on this earth, we will never be freed completely from sin. We are freed from its penalty through the shed blood of Jesus. But the best analogy we can think of is that as Christians, we are not people who have reached the mountaintop. Rather, we are beggars who have found bread for life at the foot of the cross. And our job is to reach out to other beggars and to show them where the bread of life can be found. Quoting Bishop Ryle again, he says, the first thing needful in order to have an interest in Christ is to feel deeply our own corruption and to be willing to come to him for deliverance. We are not to keep away because we feel bad or wicked or unworthy. We are to remember that sinners are those he came into the world to save. And if we feel ourselves to be sinners, that is well. Happy is he who really comprehends that the one principal qualification for coming to Christ is a deep sense of sin. If by the grace of God we really understand that glorious truth, let us take heed that we never forget it. Let us not dream that true Christians ever attain such a state of perfection in this world as to not need the mediation and intercession of Jesus. Sinners we are on the day we first come to Christ, poor needy sinners we continue to be so long as we live, drawing all the grace we have every hour out of Christ's fullness. Sinners we shall find ourselves in the hour of our death and shall die as much indebted to Christ's blood as in the day we first believed. 
My friends, there are two questions for us this morning, and most of us will fall into one of these two groups. Are you this morning one of those who feels that you have strayed so far from God, that you've done so much that was so wrong, and you knew it was wrong, and you did it anyway, and you have been away, and your heart has been cold, and you've done things of which you are ashamed, and you think God hates you, or God at least doesn't want to be in relationship with you. But the message of this passage today is that you are the one that Jesus came into the world to save. It is in the same vein as that beautiful parable that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke about the lost son. And in that parable, as you will remember, the son comes to his father and does the worst thing that can happen in Hebrew culture. He basically says, I wish you were dead. I don't want to have any relationship with you. Just give me my share of your money, and I'm getting out of Dodge and getting out of your life. And the father gives him that money, and then he goes out, and he does every single thing that the world has to offer, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever it might be. And he comes and spends all of his money and gets to the end of his resources, is broken and in despair. And like the Robert Frost poem says, home is the place where when you go, they have to take you in. So he goes back to his father's house. But the beautiful thing in this story is that the father in this story every day is outside looking and waiting and hoping that his son is going to come back. And when he sees finally his dirty, disheveled, broken son coming down that dirt road toward him, the father picks up the hems of his robes and runs and throws his arms around him and welcomes him. He doesn't shake his finger at him and say, you bad son who shamed the family. Instead, he welcomes him. And the amazing thing that makes this story even more poignant is that in that culture, a Hebrew man, the father of a family, would never run. He would never be the person to go out to speak to someone. He would wait for that person to come to him. To get an idea of what it was like, it would be as if two or three years ago, you had gone to Buckingham Palace as a tourist with thousands of other people, and suddenly Queen Elizabeth had come out in the crown and the court dress and had run across the lawn and thrown her arms around you. That's how shocking this is. But the remarkable thing is Jesus could have told any story in the world about God's love and mercy, and that is the image he chooses. So my friend, if you are feeling that distance and that alienation, know that just like the hymn that we sang, Jesus beckons you to come to him. On the other hand, if you are someone who has been a Christian for a while, have you perhaps fallen into the trap of beginning to think, well, Jesus is kind of lucky that I've decided to follow him. I'm such a nice person. He's lucky to have me in his camp because look at those people over there. I'm so much better than that. Now, none of us would consciously think those things, but I would suggest to you that sometimes our actions betray our hearts. 
and that sometimes we do look down on those people and we like to make fun of them and blame everything that's wrong with the world with them. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus calls us to be his hands and feet. He calls us to be his voice of love, of calling people to follow him and not being like the Pharisees judging them, but going to them where they are, reaching out to them, building relationship, not saying where you are is great, just stay there in your sin, but showing them that there is a more beautiful story. My friends, most of us fall into one of those groups with the great good news is that Jesus beckons us all to come to him, and with him is plenteous mercy and redemption. I'd like to close with a prayer that is based on the words of the hymn that we just sang, if you would bow your heads. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you stretched out your loving arms of mercy on the hard wood of the cross, that all the world, all sorts and conditions of people might come within the reach of your saving embrace. Lord, we pray that you would help us to come into your arms, to receive your mercy, and then to show that mercy to this broken world that you love so much. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.